It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump has given no indication that he's preparing to concede the election. In fact, Trump has indicated he's prepared to explore all legal options. His personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has said they're preparing to file lawsuits in several states over ballot fraud, despite the fact that there's been no evidence of widespread irregularities in the election or any fraudulent votes. And courts have already dismissed several lawsuits in Georgia, Nevada, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Joining me is election law expert Derek Muller, a professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. Is litigation over the election more difficult after the votes have been counted? Absolutely. You know, once those ballots are taken out of the envelopes when you're dealing with absentee envelopes or provisional ballots that a jurisdiction chooses to count, you know, they're all commingled, they're all counted, they're all put together. So legal challenges are are pretty limited at that point. You're looking at recounts. Recounts can look at, you know, whether or not there were overvotes or undervotes. But the machines are much better at reading these things nowadays. The optical scan ballots are very good at that. Maybe there's a, a little bit of a dispute of a ballot here or there, you know, some set of absentee ballots that were rejected for a signature mismatch that maybe you want to get counted. But unless you're able to allege something like systemic fraud in the election undermining the results, your options just become very, very limited once all the ballots have been counted the first time. You would be challenging ballot by ballot then. So what would it take to have systemic fraud? What would that look like? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so in in the jurisdictions where it's happened, you know, so we can think about North Carolina's 2018 congressional election that was thrown out for, for systemic fraud. It was a pretty narrow election. But, you know, there was ample evidence of a campaign essentially bribing someone to manufacture uh, absentee ballot requests, falsifying the absentee ballots by completing them with forged signatures, completing them on behalf of someone else and submitting them, and that there was such sufficient widespread evidence of fraud that the result of the election was in doubt. Um, Now, that was a few hundred ballots. And um, sometimes these kinds of disputes arise in a, in a city council or mayoral election in a locality where it's a, a couple thousand ballots that are cast in total and someone's able to sort of rig the election. But I mean, those are those are pretty egregious examples. And it, in order to sort of achieve fraud at that kind of scale is just, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to do. So I think when we're talking about that kind of evidence, it's worth emphasizing how rare it is and how difficult it is to achieve at that at that level. Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, on Fox on Sunday, he said that he was prepared to point to dozens of witnesses in Pennsylvania who would attest under oath that they observed instances of election malfeasance. Quote, 
There are upwards of 50 witnesses, and this will be the subject of a lawsuit that we file Monday for violating civil rights, for conducting an unfair election, for violating the law of the state, for treating Pittsburgh and Philadelphia different than the rest of the state. What is he referring to here? Let's say you found a couple of witnesses who said, I observed fraud. Does that just apply to the ballots that they observed, or does it apply to the whole system there? Yeah, this is tricky. I mean, I, I want to work backwards for a minute to think about the remedy, right? Let's say you establish all this. What should happen? Um, you know, most of the time we say you hold a new election. Uh, but that's, you know, when, when we're thinking about the Electoral College meeting December 14th, you know, that seems pretty much impossible to do. Um, additionally, you know, there's some questions about if the legislature could get involved. But so far, I think the legislature seems satisfied to allow the election process to play out. So we can take a step back then to think about what kinds of fraud and evidence they have. And there's no question, I think, um, you know, the campaign did win on election observers that were in a room 100 feet away when they were entitled to be six feet away um, to see what was happening in those jurisdictions. And maybe you're saying there's inconsistencies in how um, sort of the verification of, of absentee ballots was processed from, from county to county, right? And so there's a potentially an equal protection argument to raise there. But, you know, but, but each of these things, it, it's really hard to, to establish that, you know, on the equal protection front, let's say, that the, that the treatment across counties was so disparate as to rise to the level of arbitrary and unfair treatment, which is the kind of level that Bush v. Gore talked about, sort of arbitrary treatment of voters from, from county to county. Um, another is to sort of say, well, if there's no observers, what's the harm? You know, a lot of cases say, well, observers have a right to be there, but we also know there's a bipartisan process of, of canvassing votes of Republicans and Democrats in all counties in Pennsylvania uh, sort of participating in that process, even if they're not formally affiliated with the campaign. Um, and then finally, you know, the fact that there are witnesses who come forward and testify about something you know, that they, they can. And, and I think the Trump campaign has filed lawsuits where they've had witnesses saying we've observed this. This appears to be malfeasance. This seems to be a problem. Um, and then, you know, when there's a court hearing and an election official is given a chance to ask questions on the other side and provide evidence about what they were doing, some of these cases have been thrown out in other jurisdictions. So you can have a witness allege something, but they might still be missing the context. So. Um, there's no question, I think, that the Trump campaign has some legitimate grievances about especially observation of the counting process. Um, and I, I have no doubt they're going to bring forward witnesses that will sort of describe some regularities they saw. But then you just sort of wait for the legal process to play out to see what the explanations are there. And again, I think at this stage, I, I think it's very hard to allege that there's such systematic fraud to suggest that, that the confidence of the election is in doubt. Derek, their greatest efforts seem to be focused on Pennsylvania. The election officials there have said that both sides were allowed to view the ballot counting process and that it was even live streaming. Yeah, I, and I think, again, this gets to, you know, the, the level of confidence you have in the election administrators at various stages. Um, and, and I'll point to a couple of things. So, when, you know, on the, on the live streaming point, I, th I think it's important, but, you know, it's not like it's not like there's a camera over each table <laughs> providing everyone sort of a look at what's happening in each stage of the canvassing process. Right. So, um, you know, they're, they're not concealing anything from the public, but it's, I don't know that it's the most sort of visible for us to sort of exactly see what's happening. But, you know, again, we sort of have professional poll workers, professionals who are, you know, sometimes some of them are full time. It's their full time job. Some of them are brought in part time and are trained to handle this on a bipartisan basis, Republicans and Democrats who are 
canvassing the vote. They're opening the envelopes. They're counting them. They're running through the machines. If there's a problem, if there's a dispute that arises, you know, they'll they'll, they'll try to resolve it amongst themselves or, or bring in a higher up to, to resolve the dispute. And on top of that is a chance for campaigns to send their own election observers to see what the workers are doing. And again, I think the Trump campaign did point out, you know, at various points in time, they were denied the kind of access they wanted. And the court found in their favor that they should have had that access. But again, what's the sort of, is the allegation that in in the moments they weren't there, that there were somehow ballots being, you know, fraudulently drafted? (laughs) You know, is it that, um, you know, when they're opening the envelopes, they're not being as careful as they should be in verifying that all of the information on the the envelope is accurate, that, that, uh, that it's properly sealed, that there's not stray marks on the, on the secrecy envelope. You know, there, there's technical violations that can arise and that an observer might want to challenge. But again, you know, these are, you know, in my judgment, sort of pretty small scale stuff to the extent that there's a concern being raised. And without that sort of evidence that there's something systemic happening, that there's some deeper concern about the administration of the process, it's really hard to get from we were denied observing to therefore we're casting sort of doubt on the election. There's still a missing link in there about the malfeasance that might have occurred. And again, um, I, I just, I, so far, I haven't seen anything to that effect. Ben Ginsburg, who has been a Republican election lawyer who was behind Bush v. Gore, he said that what he thought might be happening is that the Trump campaign was trying to slow down the count in states in the hope that the states don't complete the job of certifying results in time for the Electoral College to meet. So then you have those dates coming up. Do you think that they could slow it down enough that they wouldn't be able to certify at least by December 14th? No, I don't think so. The strategy might be to slow it down a bit so that the legal team can kind of gather evidence and get things together and make sure, again, that some of these ballots aren't being processed so that they can challenge them later, right? Again, as I mentioned, once they're ripped out of the envelope and dropped in the machine, they're gone. They're circulated and commingled with everything else. So I don't think it's a viable strategy, and I, and I doubt that would be the strategy, except they're developing one uh, at the Trump headquarters, to sort of hold off until December 14th when the electors meet. You know, that's just unrealistic. When we think about Bush versus Gore, I mean, that was 36 days of agony with a series of pieces of litigation happening, but there was already a count in place. There was already a result. The Secretary of State was moving forward with the certification, and it was just a question of whether or not we needed to amend that certification, whether or not we needed to change those totals, whether or not the recount would have altered things. So at this stage, you know, I would expect the count to be done in the very near future, and then there's going to be, you know, potentially some more litigation about whether the election results should be set aside. Again, I think a very heavy lift litigation over the recount, which is certainly something that can extend a little bit longer and and how the Secretary of State should handle uncertainty in that stage. But again, it's also worth emphasizing as the margin grows larger in some of these states like Pennsylvania. And as it's not just Pennsylvania, Trump needs to win the election, it would also be Arizona and Georgia. And it, it, it becomes more and more challenging, exponentially so, as we start to think about building that path forward. Do you know which states right now look like they would be eligible for a recount? I know that Trump said that they were going to ask for a recount in Michigan and, I don't know, possibly Georgia? Yeah, I mean, Georgia seems very close and could go to a recount. Wisconsin is another place where they would be entitled to a recount. You know, I think any of these jurisdictions, it depends on the state. Pennsylvania looks pretty good for a recount, too. Um, It depends on whether it's uh, under a 
quarter of a percent, half a percent, one percent. It, it can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Now again, you know, a recount is a recount. It, it, it entitles you to sort of get in there and, and, and look at the ballots and rerun them through the machines. But, you know, the machines are really good these days. <laughs> They're very accurate. And, and there's not a lot that changes in a recount. Sometimes it, it can be a couple hundred votes. Um, so we can go back to 2016, where there was a recount in Wisconsin, where the margin is almost exactly the margin it was right now. And uh, the Trump campaign had won that state by about 22,000 votes and picked up about 130 votes in the recount. Um, and that, that's something you would expect, that if there's sort of a random distribution of undercount, undercounted votes, um, they're probably going to cut slightly in favor of the candidate who's already ahead. So it, it, when we're talking about recounts, you know, again, there's that statutory entitlement to it. They can slow down the process. The, the, the states have certification goals and objectives to complete recounts by a specific period of time. Florida 2000 was a very odd situation where there was a lot of fighting about how to count certain ballots, how a manual recount of these hanging Chad ballots was supposed to work, right? I think states have much more streamlined recount procedures in place to sort of expedite this process. And so, again, it will slow things down, but, but we'll just see if they choose to press forward with it, uh, what that looks like. Does a state have to do the recount before they can certify the election? So most states have an unofficial result, and then they have, uh, you know, sort of the, the lot. There's a series of stages of canvassing that occur before they get to the the, the final certification. Now, again, in Florida, the, the timing was to have the recount in place, uh, in theory, under the statute, ahead of the certification deadline. But then there might be extenuating circumstances where you can continue and persist in your recount even after that certification deadline. So we've seen states, and I think about um, the Al Franken, Norm Coleman election in Minnesota in 2008, a Senate election that went to a recount. And with all the judicial wrangling, it took over six months to resolve that election. So even though there's a certification deadline, sometimes the legal wrangling can also push that much later. But one lesson we learned from Bush versus Gore is that The Supreme Court was really interested in having states resolve these disputes expeditiously in presidential elections. They know there's that hard date of the meeting of the Electoral College on December 14th. Um, There's a softer date described as the safe harbor, which this year is December 8th, which is that states really ought to resolve all of their election disputes pertaining to electors in order for Congress to presume that those electors are are regularly chosen. Um, And so you can miss that deadline, but states try not to. Um, states do update their totals a little bit after De- after the December 8th deadline. It happens. Um, but the point is we they're, they're confident about who the winner is at that point. Whether or not they adjust some of the vote totals in the days after that is a different story. Um, but, 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 but in theory, these states have statutory uh, objectives to recount the, the, to recount and complete um, you know before the, the certification deadline and only sort of blow past that if there's some judicial problem that arises. Finally, I want to discuss the Supreme Court in this whole thing because you know Trump repeatedly has said this is going to be decided by the Supreme Court, and Justice Alito issued an order. Is there any possibility at this point that that case that the Supreme Court could still consider the case of those ballots that came in after Election Day, three days until three days after, and were counted? So there's still a possibility they'll, they'll hear that case, but I think it remains a different question about whether they would hear it um, in time to affect the outcome, uh, whether it would affect the outcome, and whether the remedy they offer 
um, would necessarily be the one that the Trump campaign wants. So let me set this up. There's, there's a lot of like moving pieces happening here, right? So right now the the, the margin in Pennsylvania is you know 50,000 votes in Biden's favor. Um, so if there's a fight over this sort of batch of ballots after election day, one question we ask is, does it even matter at the end of the day, right? Would that batch of ballots even make a difference? It's not clear how many are out there. It seems like a low number. I've seen numbers as, you know, maybe around 10,000. I saw some report today, 50,000, although I think that's probably a little bit high. But even that batch of ballots, right, it's not, they're all not all coming in for one candidate. They're, they're coming in divided amongst candidates. So it's, it's not clear that it's going to even affect the outcome of the election if the margin is wide enough. And if it doesn't affect the outcome of the election, the court might not feel any urgency to take it up right now. And even if they did take it up, they might also look at it on a remedial side to say, listen, if we told voters before Election Day, these votes need to come in by election day or we won't count them. Um, they're on notice. But after election day, where this rule had been in place, at least in theory, that if they are postmarked by election day and come in in the next three days, or if they come in the next three days without a postmark and we'll count them, um, you know, it, it's a little unfair to sort of pull the rug out from the, from the voters at that point when the Supreme Court swoops in later on and says, no, no, we're not going to count those ballots. Now, maybe they say you're on notice that there was litigation. Maybe you should have been a little bit more confident. But all this is to say the Supreme Court could decide this case, uh, you know, next year if it wanted to. Just the, the case has been brought up before the court. Um, it, it's not moot even after an election. Election law cases uh, typically sort of evade mootness uh, concerns by the court saying, as long as you raised it, and we know that elections are sort of quick things, we can resolve this later. I, I keep referring back to a famous case called Anderson versus Celebrezzi, which involved John B. Anderson's campaign in 1980, and the court issued a decision in 1983, right? Hardly hardly a timely decision. So we can think about the court potentially wanting to, in, it has some academic interest, it wants to provide legal guidance ahead of the 2024 election, um, but I think the, the odds of it deciding this case in a way that issues a judgment that not only affects the Trump campaign, but affects the Trump campaign in a way that alters the outcome of the Pennsylvania litigation is just exceedingly low. Thanks, Derek. That's Derek Muller, professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's been three years since the eruption of the Me Too movement, and businesses are still revamping their workplace dating policies, sometimes turning to disclosure requirements that may make employees blush, but don't violate privacy laws. Joining me is employment law expert Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. Let's start out with the main question. Do employers have the right to forbid relationships between employees because it sounds like a real intrusion into their private lives? Yeah, it may seem uh, at first glance to be uh, an intrusion into some kind of a private relationship. But when there's a workplace romance, there are what I call fellow travelers uh, that uh, go along with the a happy couple who might be involved uh, in that relationship. And what do I mean by that? Well, the number one fellow traveler is the employer. 
if the uh, boss is dating somebody who reports to him or her uh, and the relationship goes sour, as sometimes happens, in that situation, uh, it is not unusual for the employee to claim that uh, the boss has retaliated against that employee because of the relationship having gone sour and may say that I no longer am getting the perks I was getting previously. I didn't get the bonus. Indeed, maybe uh, maybe the boss is on the verge of firing me. And in that situation, everybody starts calling lawyers. The HR department will start calling lawyers. The employee himself or herself will start calling lawyers. And suddenly, what was a so-called private relationship now is a very public relationship, at least within the four walls of the employer. And in that situation, suddenly, everyone's looking at the employer as the deep pocket uh, to make things right. So that's the number one fellow traveler in such a relationship. And almost always, if it, if it goes badly, ends up in the lap of the employer. Another group of fellow travelers uh, in such a relationship in the workplace are all the other employees who aren't dating the boss. Uh, it is almost always the case that if uh, one employee is dating the boss and there are five or eight who are not, and uh, this becomes common knowledge as it so often does, whether it's water cooler talk or gossip, whatever, it often becomes uh, knowledge that is known by other employees. It is, I would say, 100% certain, not even 95% certain, but 100% certain that everybody who isn't dating the boss is going to take the position that the employee who is dating the boss is receiving some form of preferential treatment. And even if that isn't happening, it's almost impossible to dispel that perception. And so no matter what happens, you've got, again, a fellow traveler in the relationship, which probably neither of the happy participants, at least at the beginning, uh, they were happy, may have anticipated. So how common are workplace dating policies? How long have they been in place? I would say they have risen exponentially in the last three to five years, certainly since the Harvey Weinstein scandals broke uh, and the Me Too movement uh, began. Things have very much accelerated in this regard. Uh, employers have taken a, a more active role in uh, monitoring and reporting and training employees in connection with these kinds of things. I think maybe there was more of a propensity for employers to either look the other way or consider it to be a private matter. Now, because of, uh, as I say, the fellow travelers that exist in such a relationship, employers who are knowledgeable recognize that these are things that are potential liability centers and can be really problematic in the event that the relationship goes badly. One of the things that I always think about in terms of perspective is we know that 50% of marriages uh, in the United States are destined for divorce. I don't know for sure what percentage of workplace romances will fail, but I would guess it's at least 50%. And I also assume the number of failed workplace romances increases exponentially when one or both parties are married to other people, as is so often the case. So while uh, I, I hate to be... Um, the non-romantic in the conversation here, but when one enters into such uh, a relationship in the workplace or anywhere, but certainly in the workplace, the statistics are not in your favor that it's going to end well. And when you compare a workplace romance to a non-workplace romance, there's a lot more fallout in the workplace romance because once you uh, have uh, ceased uh, being interested in the other person or one person has ceased being interested in the other person, it's much more difficult to terminate 
connections when you work six feet away from that person every day uh, for eight to ten hours. And that is something, obviously, that doesn't occur in the outside uh, workplace. There's a, there's a term known as ghosting. You can uh, People ghost one another, I guess. It's a kind of a rude thing to do, but that happens. But you can't ghost somebody who works in the next cubicle or in the next office. And certainly you can't ghost somebody who happens to be your boss or even the person who reports to you. Do most companies require disclosure of a relationship or just forbid them outright? Uh, there, it, it comes in different flavors. Some employers differentiate between workplace romances that exist in a reporting relationship. That's actually the most dangerous area, both for uh, the supervisor uh, and also for the employer. Why is that? Because when a supervisor acts uh, in connection with an employee that reports to him or her, the company acts. Uh, The supervisor is essentially the embodiment of the company. And so if there is sexual harassment or alleged sexual harassment that occurs by a supervisor with respect to somebody who reports to that supervisor, the employer is strictly liable, uh, meaning that even if the employer did not know there was a relationship, did not know there was any harassment going on, indeed may not have been able to find out. Perhaps uh, the couple has done a very good job in keeping it under wraps. In those circumstances, if the employee says he or she was sexually harassed, the employer and the supervisor are strictly liable in the event that harassment is proved. So employers that recognize this are much more interested uh, in regulating and indeed often prohibiting a relationship between a supervised employee and, and the boss that that supervised employee reports to. There's also the issue of co-employees. This is often referred to as paramour liability where you have other employees reporting to the same boss who have potential claims also who say that there's favorable treatment that is being uh, showered upon the employee who happens to be having uh, the relationship with the boss. There are also policies that employers have that regulate, often don't prohibit, but more closely regulate relationships between employees who are co-employees, meaning that they're not, no one's reporting to one another, no one's the boss, uh, they may be in different departments. Employers are less concerned about that kind of a relationship because neither employee has the ability to affect the terms and conditions of employment of the other. That's where you get into trouble as an employer and as a supervisor when there is that potential for controlling the terms and conditions of employment. So that's workplace dating policies. Are there also contracts that an employee might be required to sign? Love contracts? Yeah, I would love to know who actually uh, coined the term love <laughs> contracts. It, uh, it has so many different potential implications. It does. Uh, but it is something that when you mention love contracts to an employment lawyer such as myself, we know exactly what that means. Uh, and what those are, are kind of ways in which employers are, are, are grappling with this situation when it arises. And uh, they often supplement a policy such as the one I mentioned, which is either, either prohibits dating between a supervisor and a subordinate employee or obligates, at the very least, a disclosure of such a relationship. Um, so before you get to the love contract, oftentimes the policies, as I say, either prohibit a relationship with somebody who reports to the supervisor uh, or requires the, it puts the onus on the supervisor to report such a relationship to human resources or the legal department or both. Why is that? So that 
somebody who doesn't have a conflict of interest in HR or in the legal department can uh, put eyes on this relationship and make a determination of whether uh, these two employees should continue to work in such close proximity, and importantly, whether the subordinate employee should continue to report to the boss. Many employers, when they find out about either directly or indirectly a relationship between a supervisor and another employee, uh, will um, move either the boss or the subordinate, but you have to be very careful with that as well, because the subordinate can't be put in a position where he or she has fewer job opportunities or where there's an adverse impact on their uh, on their career, because they may very well say that that somehow is retaliation or that's an extension of harassment, if that's what they're alleging has occurred. Uh, so the employee has to be very, very careful in making sure that the uh, the relationship is is severed, the, the work relationship is severed, uh, so as to guard against potential liability, but also to make sure that it doesn't look as though the employee is being retaliated against in any way uh, for having um, been in this relationship, or as I say, if it turns into harassment, especially in that situation. Um, a further extension beyond a policy just prohibiting uh, having these relationships or obligating the supervisor to disclose is something called a love contract. And what that does uh, is it puts everything on the table and in writing. And it contains several uh, common components. Number one, there is a requirement that there be full disclosure uh, by both the supervisor and the uh, employee that a relationship is going on. One of the first components of, of a so-called love contract is to remind uh, both parties to the relationship, uh, and particularly the, the employee who is reporting to the boss, that they uh, are not compelled or obligated in any way to enter into or remain in the relationship. That may seem like common sense, but what the love contract is intended to do is to guard against uh, a future claim of harassment. So if at the very beginning, presumably when there's still a very good relationship between the couple, they both acknowledge this relationship is happening, and the employee um, who will be asked to sign the love contract acknowledges that if at any time uh, he or she wishes to exit the relationship, the romantic relationship, uh, they have a right to do so. Uh, and that, and it, it also generally confirms that they will suffer no retaliation in terms of their uh, job or their employment uh, for making a decision to exit the uh, relationship. So this is kind of a warning to the supervisor that if there's a breakup, do not retaliate against this employee when it comes to terms or conditions of employment. And it's a acknowledgement by the employee that if they wish to exit the relationship, they can do so and there will be no job-related repercussions. So... There are many stages of love, as you know, and I'm wondering how the employer draws the line or has the employees draw the line between, you know, flirting, infatuation, romance, and relationship. Well, the good news is that much of the heavy lifting uh, in this kind of uh, situation is usually dealt with in a sexual harassment policy, and most well-advised uh, employers in the United States now have some form of express harassment policy uh, that, that, that actually gives examples and that describes what is or could be harassment and should be prohibited 
most sexual harassment um, policies differentiate between activities that are relatively harmless uh, and those that are more severe or more pervasive. And those are those are uh, important words when you are assessing whether there is harassment. Something is usually either severe uh, in terms of the kind of activities that we're engaged in. It may involve some form of touching or, or worse, uh, or pervasive, meaning this, there's been a lot of um, asking out or uh, you know comments about uh, the way somebody is dressed, something like that. Um, in the absence of severe or pervasive, oftentimes it's hard for an employee to prove sexual harassment. But um, th there are guideposts that are provided in most sexual harassment policies. And getting back to the love contract, it's usually very common to attach to the love contract itself a copy of the company's sexual harassment policy. So that, again, both the supervisor and the employee are made very much aware of what the policy is and indeed what the law is in connection with this so that it's not just a piece of paper somewhere buried in the middle of a 50 or 60 page employee handbook. It is attached, the policy itself, to the love contract itself so that both uh, parties can see what the requirements are and what the expectations are from the employer. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Tony. That's employment law expert Anthony Ancidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.